0: I want to thank everybody for being with us this morning. Uh, thank you for joining us on this resurrection morning. If you are new to the church this morning, a special welcome to you. I would love to be able to meet you after the church service is done. Um, we were running late on a few things and I wasn't paying attention. So I was particularly glad this morning that Daniel was doing the welcome. Otherwise, we still wouldn't have started. I'd be in the back talking to people. So, Daniel, I'm glad you were paying attention. Let's pray. Father, we come now uh, as your people and we submit ourselves to your word as that last song taught us. We need your word. We need to see you through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen now. I pray that you would uh, open blind eyes, that you would unstop plugged ears, that you would soften hard hearts, and that you would work now through the preaching of your word. Would you make us uh, into a church that is shaped by and submitted to the authority of your word. And would you make us individuals who are sustained and fed and shaped by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I am particularly thankful this year, as I think about last Easter morning, where most of my family was sitting in the living room, And I was playing guitar, and we were singing songs, and we were going through, I don't even remember what the passage was, one of the Easter passages, and Jen was with us via a a Zoom window on the computer, because she was in the hospital with Owen, and I'm just thankful that she is here. Now, she's pacing in the back to keep Owen from screaming, but uh, I'm just so thankful that she's with us this year. If, If Owen starts screaming, just consider it a hallelujah, and we'll keep moving on. The resurrection of Jesus points us to hope. Hope is something that is uniquely human in this world. Now, God has created all kinds of creatures, but humans are different than every other creature. And while animals can long for things instinctively or even have a hunger and a thirst and a desire, a need, a hormonal need, there can be all kinds of things that drive an animal, hope is something that is uniquely human in this created order. Because we hope, we can plan out years ahead, we can strategize, we can sacrifice, we can be selfless servants to others, we can, we can give up our weekends in order to work longer because the hope of something, we can say no to things, say yes, we can make all kinds of choices, some of them really hard, because we have the unique ability to hope for something far out in the future without hope, I would say we aren't particularly human. This last year has been a year that's been pretty rough on hope for many of us. Maybe you're here today and you're just barely holding on to hope. I think of hope as an essential vitamin for being human, being a healthy human. And you can... You can re- reduce it in your diet for a while. You could cut it out for a short period of time. But if you're without hope long enough, things fall apart. Clinically speaking, if a person is without any hope long enough, they can physically die from it. That's how important hope is for us. As I think about this last year, Maybe you remember back to last February, early February, as we're just starting to get a picture of what's going on with the mysterious COVID-19 virus. And if you're like me, you were looking multiple times a day to see where the numbers are growing. Of course, there's the the huge spike in China, Italy, and Iran. And I remember thinking, probably in the middle of February last year, looking at the charts, like, what is going on with Italy and Iran? why are they why are these curves going up so much and we we thought we i hope it doesn't really come to us i hope it doesn't spread all over the world i hope it's not as bad as we think it is and i remember looking at you know the numbers in the united states and how it started in Wa- in washington area and kind of grew really fast out of there and if you look at the charts today like the chart that we have here this next slide here this is cases over the last year, and you go back to a year ago, you can't even see what a year ago looked like a steep curve up. It's just that that has gone. The resolution does not allow us to see how scary the curve looked one year ago today. We hoped that maybe it wouldn't hit us, and it seemed like a false hope now. We had hope that we could go to the store and buy toilet paper, and sometimes that was a false hope. We had hope that if we paused for two weeks, we could get back to normal, and that was not the case. As school was winding down, many parents had hope that, okay, if I just make it through the end of this school year, then we can have a normal-ish summer, and we know the pool is going to be closed, but... A normalish summer, and then maybe things will be normal for the school year. Maybe our country will calm down. And then George Floyd lost his life, and for a hundred straight nights, there was chaos and violence in many of the cities around the country. We saw clearly with our own eyes the result of a hopelessness. For there are certain populations in the country who feel like they have no hope for our country. when you you see a, a protest and you hear people chanting, burn it all down, they're not just talking about the businesses that they're burning down. They believe that the entire system of the United States is fundamentally flawed and needs to be burned to the ground because it is evil at its core. That comes from a utter hopelessness. If you believe your country is conceived and born in evil and has just lived in evil for its 200 or so years of life, you are without hope of it turning around. You think you just got to kill it and you got to start all over again. We saw that with our eyes this summer. To be hopeless is a powerful thing. Imagine Jesus' first followers. Imagine you were one of those first followers. For three years, you followed Jesus around, and you saw things, and you heard things that completely blew your mind. You were completely convinced, near the end of that three years, that you had found the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who would set everything right, not, in the, not only in the nation of Israel, but in the world. You had a front row seat to what you knew was going to be the biggest movement in history. And then imagine yourself on Good Friday, as that Messiah, your friend, is hanging on a cross, dying in public. The hopes that you had for this miracle-working, compassionate, amazing teacher, who was like nobody else, your hopes are gone. You ran, you hid, you cowered in fear. And your hopes died. Does that sound like the sort of people who would launch a religious movement that would spread over the whole known world within just a few centuries, and every society in which it entered, it would completely transform that society? That, that doesn't make sense, does it? All of Jesus' followers, without hope, crushed, living in fear, then become the leader's of the most powerful religious and social force this world has ever seen. How does that happen? What makes the difference? The difference is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a real historical fact. It really happened. And if you believe that, much of the world thinks you are certifiably insane. He said that Jesus is, in fact, living today, 2,000 years later, reigning over the universe that looks like it's full of chaos and evil. you got to be bonkers to believe something like that, right? Yet many of us in this room are here today because we believe that. that, that Jesus' body began the process of decay. Think about even just a, f- a few minutes after death. Think of all the millions of cells that start to break down. And yet we say, after three days in a tomb, all that stuff gets pulled back together, and he walks out. And we would say, sometime in the future, that's going to happen to us. Think about all the bodies out at Greenlawn Cemetery. How would you even start to put them back together? what about cremation? What about ashes scattered to the wind? How could this be real? And yet Christians have for 2,000 years proclaimed that Jesus really did rise from the dead, and so will we someday. About 20 short years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, a guy that we know as the Apostle Paul wrote a letter. I'm going to show you a map to give you an idea of where he's writing from. He's, let's go on to the next one there. He's, he's in Ephesus, and he's writing to Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. This letter becomes known as the New Testament book of, the, of 1 Corinthians. Through this letter, Paul, in 16 chapters, he spends a lot of time blasting the Corinthian church. There's was, there was lots of sexual immorality and favoritism and greed and just all kinds of corruption in the church, and he had to bring strong correction to them. He spent much of the second half of the letter then telling them how to be and do church. They were being and doing church in wrong ways, and they needed corrected. They needed to be set on the right path. But then we get to the second to the last chapter, 15, and he focuses the whole chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. I'd like us to look at that today. Now, we're not going to look at every verse in the chapter. I'm going to skip a few sections. I encourage you to read it on your own. And if you got some questions, I'd love to talk with you any time in the next few weeks about those. If you read the parts that we skip, you will have questions. I guarantee it. There's some tough stuff in there. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got a Bible, please open it up. If you're using a pew Bible, 961 is the page for you. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is going to lay out for us, help us to understand the reality, the importance, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to start a little slow, and we'll accelerate as we go along. So when we're a few minutes into it, and you're thinking, how are we ever going to get to the end? Don't worry, we'll speed up as we go. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, since he's starting a new section here, it's almost like he starts with a new introduction to the letter. He's he's helping us understand what's going to happen in the next few verses. Notice a few things here. First, he refers to these guys as brothers brothers and sisters. He's writing to people who he considers brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, he is Jewish. They are primarily Gentile. He grew up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic. They grew up speaking Greek and Latin. And yet, those divisions don't matter. In Christ, we are united together. He says, you are my brothers. And so, ethnicity, language, Skin color, what the world falsely calls race today, because there really is only one human race. All of that stuff doesn't matter. These guys and gals in Corinth are brothers and sisters in Christ with Paul. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Why does he need to remind them of the gospel? The gospel is the good news that even though you and I were miserable, rebellious sinners, and that God had every right to just wipe us out and condemn us to eternal punishment, because of his love, he made a way for us to escape that eternal punishment and be united with him in peace, to have restored new relationship with him. That way is Jesus Christ coming as the God-man, God in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying a terrible death on the cross, taking all of our sin, shame, punishment upon him in that death, paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. And that if we respond with repentance that is turning around, and faith, trusting completely in Christ, we can be forgiven and made right with God. That's the gospel. Now, these guys know that. Why would they need to be reminded of it? It has changed them. It has taken them from being godless, awful pagans to being slightly less awful Christians. It's transforming their lives. It's turning their world upside down. Why would they need to be reminded? The same reason you and I need to be reminded. We forget. We leak. We slide. We get cloudy. One of the main reasons we gather every Sunday is to remind each other of the gospel of Jesus. Daniel does such a good job of strategically picking songs for us that remind us of the truths of Scripture, especially of the gospel. And so when we come and we fill this room with the sound of our voices singing songs like we did this morning, we are reminding each other of the gospel. And we need that because we forget. We are prone to forget, just like the Corinthians. Paul says that he's preached this gospel to them, that they have received it, and they stand in it. Christian, if you are going to stand at all in this life and in the next, it has to be in the gospel. It's not in your own goodness. It's not in your own worthiness. It's not in how impressive and skilled and talented and wonderful you are. If you're going to stand, it will only be in the gospel. Or you will not stand at all. Now, he also says, that this gospel is saving them, present tense. So the gospel saves us, has saved them, has saved me, past tense, but is also saving us, saving me right now, present tense. That, that doesn't mean that there isn't a point of time where I was spiritually lost and dead and then Jesus saves me, and now I'm spiritually alive, moving into eternity with him. That is absolutely true. There's a point in time in my life where I was no longer a child of the devil. Now I'm a child of the king of the universe. I was unforgiven. Now I am forgiven. I was at war with God. Now I am at peace with God. That moment in time was very real. But the gospel doesn't just affect that one moment. It continues to work in us so that we are refined, that we're made more into the image of Christ. We become more Christ-like. We become more sanctified is the word. Sanctified, sanctuary, sanctus. It means holy. We are being made more holy by the continual reminder and living in the gospel. And then there's this, there's this warning in verse 2. It's a sober warning. It says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, and if that was all that you had to understand the gospel, you would come to the conclusion that unless you believe hard enough, unless you trust good enough, remain steadfast enough, you're going to be lost again. And that is not the case. The witness of the whole New Testament shows us that when Jesus has saved us, he holds us fast even when we don't hold fast to him, that we are secure in him. So what is this talking about? What is Paul getting at here? I would suggest that this this troublesome little verse here is helping us to understand that sometimes we misunderstand the gospel. We could go to church our whole lives and we could hear the gospel even every week and yet we don't understand it, we don't believe it, or we believe a false gospel or we don't believe the real gospel completely, we still trust in ourselves. And so Paul's writing this to a mixed group, just like I'm speaking to a mixed group this morning. There are people in this room who are alive and there are people in this room who are dead. And you all heard the same gospel this morning. Now, let's go on to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul's saying, this is the most important thing. If you're going to get a, a whiteboard on your refrigerator and erase the shopping list, instead make a list of the most important things in life so that you can live your life in a well-ordered way, number one, he says, is this. This is it right here. I'm going to tell you what it is. I've already told you, but I'm going to remind you. It's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the most important thing, he says. And he frames each of those statements with this little little phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. When anybody in the New Testament is using the word Scriptures, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. Paul is saying that the, the virgin birth of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, the miracles, the healings, the teachings, all of that in the three years of Jesus' ministry, the wrongful arrest, the crucifixion, the burying and the resurrection of Jesus are all prophesied in the Old Testament and that it's all playing out according to the Scriptures. We sometimes think that the plan of God went wrong and he had to come up with a plan B and he chose to have Jesus die as that plan B. That is not the case. Jesus, is he's not just a stopgap. He's not an emergency, you know, if you've ever ridden a train in a big city and you could could pull the emergency, stop. That's not Jesus. From the beginning, the plan was this. And it was laid out throughout the whole Old Testament by multiple writers over thousands of years that this is what would happen. Paul says it's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, all in accordance with the Scripture. There are many today, many smarty pants scholars even, who love to hear themselves speak, who love to write books, who love to go on CNN and make sensational claims, and they, they love to say things like, there really wasn't a historical Jesus. Or if he was actually a man, then he wasn't anything like we have in the New Testament. He was probably a great teacher, and somehow he started this big movement, but he was not God in the flesh. He did not perform miracles. He didn't raise people from the dead. If he was crucified, it wasn't for our sins. It, be, it was because he was a troublemaker and he got what he deserved. And there is no way he rose from the dead. Because that doesn't happen. And we're too smart today to think that things like that happen. Paul's having none of that. And he's going to tell us over these next few verses that there is good historical reason to believe That Jesus really did live, really did die for our sins, and really did rise from the grave. Verse 5. And he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's one of the many names of Peter, then to the twelve, speaking of the twelve apostles, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Remember, this is just twenty years after the event though some have fallen asleep, which is a New Testament way of saying that they've died. And then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus, who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah while Jesus was alive. But after he saw, the, after he saw his brother risen from the dead, he had no choice but to believe. And then to all the apostles. Now, I wish I had time to go through the New Testament evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I don't have time to do that. I'm not going to spend the next four weeks doing that. I'm not going to spend the next four hours this morning doing that because you guys have Easter lunches to have. But if you would like to examine the evidence, I have on the back table 15 copies of this teeny little book. You can have it for free. This is written by Lee Strobel, who was an investigative journalist, who then, uh, as a skeptic, as somebody who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, decided to investigate the claims in the New Testament. He's written a few books. This one is short, easy to read. It's specifically about the claims of the resurrection in the New Testament. How would a skeptic look at the New Testament and understand the evidence that's presented there? This valuable little book is free to you if you want it. Now, there's only 15 copies, so share one in your family or share it with your friends. But please, take one of these books in the back and dig into the the historicity, the verifiable historical facts of the resurrection Of Jesus. For now, let's go back to chapter 15, verse 8. So, he's appeared to all these guys, some of whom are still alive. And he says this, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me was and." and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, there's some bigger context going on there that we're not going to talk about today. But what I want you to hear is, Paul says, last of all, not just in chronological order, but in importance, he says, last of all, the risen Christ, Jesus, appeared to me. Now, as far as we know, Paul didn't know Jesus when Jesus was just walking around before his crucifixion, that they met after the resurrection for the first time. And and Paul hints at the evil of his former life. He was a persecutor of the Christian church. He hated Christians. He was overseeing the murder of Christians until he met the risen Christ, and he became a Christian. 15 years ago, no, maybe 10 years ago, nobody had any idea what the word meme was. Now they're all over the place, right? And one of my favorite memes is this one that speaks of what I just talked about today. The Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. Now, what's this saying? He oversaw the murder of Christians. When they died, they went to eternal glory peace with Jesus in heaven. Then Paul, the murderer, comes to Christ, and when he dies as a martyr, he enters heaven, and those whom he killed are excited to see him because he is now a brother in Christ. That is the gospel at work. And I love this for how simply it captures that. This happens, Paul says, because of the grace of God. It's a gift. Grace is a gift. He mentions how he works hard, but that working hard is after his salvation. He's not working for his salvation. His salvation is a gift. And then out of thankfulness, he says he works harder than all the rest of the apostles. He's the most amazing missionary that we've ever seen. He does it out of thankfulness, not to try to earn his salvation. Well, we still have a question to answer. And some of the Corinthians were asking this question. They said, but what does it matter if Jesus was really raised? What does it matter? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, speaking to the Corinthians, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were certain groups of people in the Corinthian church that said, nobody rises from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead. Much of our American society believes that today, that we are material beings, we have a materialistic worldview. When you're dead, you're dead. They were saying that. Paul says that can't be it. Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because if there's no resurrection, then you don't get just one resurrection even. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain? Really? If, if Jesus only died to pay the price for your sins... Your faith is in vain? Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, or we're lying about God. Because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's being repetitious here, because he wants them to really think about the logic of their argument And the consequences of it. He's saying if there is no resurrection, he, the other apostles, they should be considered liars. And everyone who claims the name of Christ has believed in vain. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also, who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, have already died, have perished. If in Christ we have no hope in this life only, I'm sorry, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he's saying, if Jesus is not raised, because your argument, O Corinthians, is that nobody is raised, therefore Jesus is not raised, then you, Corinthians, are still in your sins. You are not in Christ, you are in your sins. And those, your buddies, your, your relatives who trusted in the gospel but have already died, they have, to use Paul's words, they have perished. They are no more. And there is no hope. He's saying that the resurrection is essential that it is integral to the gospel message that with without jesus rising from the dead there is no gospel message now if this is shocking to you and you've been part of this church for a while that's my fault Because almost every Sunday, I describe the gospel to you in some way, and I try to mix it up so that it comes in your ears in different ways, but I always focus in on the death of Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins, to to pay the price, to cover your debt that you owe to God. And honestly, I kind of leave the resurrection as an afterthought. it's, It's the cross, it's the death of Jesus that... That's what pays the price. That's what makes the difference. And yet Paul here is saying, without the resurrection, you've got nothing. Now, there are other places in the New Testament that say the same thing. In fact, the same guy writing in Romans spends most of chapter 3 of Romans telling us about how the cross is so desperately needed in order to cover the penalty for our sins. And then in chapter 4, the last verse of chapter 4, he says this, who, speaking of Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification, if you know, if you've been around here for a while, justification is that, that moment when you are no longer considered guilty before God because you've placed your faith in Christ alone. His sacrifice covers your sin debt. You are not guilty. You are declared justified, declared not guilty. And Paul says it is the resurrection... That was necessary for our justification. We are. He was raised for our justification. There it is, plain as day. We need the resurrection. The resurrection is is not simply something that that proves that Jesus was telling the truth. It's not simply the seal that says yes, he really had the authority that he claimed. It's not just a cry of victory like yeah, I've conquered. Death, I've conquered the grave, I am the victor. It's, it's more than that. The resurrection is integral to the gospel, integral to our salvation, to our justification. And without it, we are, as Paul says, still in our sins. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15 there. In 19, verse 19, he ends the section with what might seem like a, a rather dramatic statement, right? He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. What, what's he getting at? He's saying, look, if I'm wrong about this, if there really is no resurrection, if there really is no life everlasting for those who are in Christ, then I am wasting my life. And all those beatings and all those shipwrecks and all those imprisonments and all those things that he suffered in order to spread the gospel around the Mediterranean region, those were a complete waste of time. And everything that you do in order to build your relationship with Christ and share Christ with others and live in a holy way that's different than the rest of the world, all of that is a complete waste of time. And you should be pitied above all other people because you could be living it up in selfishness. If this life is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? And if you're wasting this life for a false hope of, a, of life with Christ in eternity, what a loser you are. That's what he's saying. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, the first man, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He uses this term first fruits. If you're a gardener, you know what he's talking about. There's all the work. There's the preparing the, the soil, there's the planting, there's the fertilizing, there's the water, there's the weeding, there's chasing away the bunny rabbits, there's all that stuff that goes into getting a good garden, and the harvest eventually comes, but, but there's a lot of work. As you watch those first tomatoes start to ripen, and you check them each day, and you're waiting for the first ones to be right, and you pick the first one, and you... Put that juicy tomato in your mouth. That is the moment of the first fruits. Some of you are thinking, I can't wait. I wish somebody else would do the work, but I can't wait. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the taste of what is to come. You and I, if we are in Christ, we will have resurrected bodies someday. Not just spirits drifting around in spiritual heaven, but we will have resurrected bodies. Now, those bodies will be similar to, but different than the bodies we have now. Hallelujah. Yeah. Jesus' body was similar to, but different than his pre-crucifixion and resurrection body. He still had the holes in his hands. Thomas came and stuck his fingers in the holes to know that it really was Jesus, and yet there was something about him that he was hard to recognize, that his best friends looked at him and didn't recognize him. But we will have bodies, and Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruit. It's the, it's the promise. It's the taste of what is to come, and more than that, it's the guarantee. Paul's saying, look, in Adam, you all got plunged into death. And everybody since Adam has died because of the sins of our first father and mother. Adam was the first fruit that led to sin and to death. But Jesus is the first fruit of the new reality, the new creation that leads to our new bodies, our resurrected bodies, and fellowship with Jesus. If you want to know what the new life is like, Jesus is that taste. Taste. The resurrected Jesus is the taste. He's also the guarantee. Paul's saying, if he's not risen, you've got no guarantee. You've got no taste of the future because there is no future. Now I'm going to read verses 23 through 28. And it's kind of a big chunk. And we're not going to go into detail here, but I don't want to skip over it. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Let me, uh, yeah, that's right. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. they speaking of, speaking of the second coming of Jesus. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus, feet. Here's where it gets a little confusing. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepting who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Aren't you glad that all of the Bible is not like that one paragraph? He's saying that these, these things, that Jesus, the first fruit of the new creation, is going to lead to an actual chronological thing in history where you're going to have the second coming of Jesus. You're going to have those who are already dead in Christ. They will be raised. Those of us who are not yet dead... Uh, in this world, we will be transformed, we'll be changed, we'll be just taken into the presence of God. That, that the return of Jesus, he will come as a conqueror and everything will be subjected under him. And then there's the explanation that if the Father, God, the Father is the one who is setting up this kingdom and giving Jesus all that authority, then it, of course, Paul says, it means that the Father is still in authority over the Son and then everything else is below the Son. That's the point of that paragraph. And so we have here the claim that Jesus will return, that he will reign over everything. Now the truth is, Jesus is already reigning over everything. It just doesn't seem like it. Our world is still messed up. You still sin, I still sin, people sin against us, the world is broken, there's heartache, there's pain, there's disappointment, all of that stuff happens, and yet Jesus is still reigning, and how could that be if Jesus is reigning already, how can things be so messed up here? And the Jewish people that thought Jesus was the Messiah, they thought the same thing. Let's, let's go to this picture here, we're almost done. This is what everybody in Israel at the time of Jesus thought reality was going to be. You've got the kingdom of this world that's just broken and fallen from the time of Adam, and then the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come at some point, and he's going to completely change everything. Not only is he going to free Israel, but he's going to to remake reality, basically. Everything's going to be restored back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. Reality, though looks very different. This next picture is similar to what I've shown you guys a few times in the past. It's the idea of the already not yet kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already alive, is already a reality, but is not yet fully realized. And so we've got on the bottom line, the kingdom of this world going back from the fall of humanity all the way forward. And then at some point, the kingdom of God begins and runs parallel to the kingdom of this world, and then the kingdom of this world will eventually have an end. And the kingdom of God will be fully realized and continue forward. If you are a Christian, you are already a citizen of the kingdom of God and you are living here as a sojourner, as an alien, temporarily in the wrong place because you belong in the kingdom of God And all the tension, all the pain, all the things that are wrong in your life are a result of that already, not yet. That you belong in one world, but you're living in this world instead. What ushered in the kingdom of God? It's that coming of Christ, the first time in his resurrection. That's the beginning of the kingdom of God. When we went through the, the Gospel of Mark, we looked at right at the beginning, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is here. And everybody thought that meant everything's going to be made right. Three years later, Jesus is hanging on the cross. But three days later, he's risen. And the kingdom of God is solidly, firmly planted at that point. Someday, he's coming back. The kingdom of this world is going to end. And the kingdom of God is going to be fully realized, fully seen. It is real. We just don't get to see it quite yet. Here's how Paul speaks of that. We're going to skip a few verses down. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty through 55. He speaks of the coming reality. When death is no more, sin is no more, pain is no more, Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, meaning uh, when Jesus returns, there will be Christians alive on the earth. They will be alive when he comes. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Where is your sting? How can death be conquered? How could death die? How could death lose its sting? How could death no longer be a threat? It begins in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the first fruit of that new creation where death is no longer a threat or even a thing to be mentioned. It starts with the resurrection. If you are in Christ, you are not only looking forward to a future new creation resurrected body, you are already fundamentally a new creation. You're, you're not just stuck in this world and then someday you get to be a new creation in the next world, the, the true reality. You are already transformed as a new creation. We see this really clearly in the book of 2 Corinthians. Same guy, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, right now, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who are in Christ, you are here today, new creations already. You got years, months, weeks, days, maybe minutes in this body. And some of you, you're eager to trade that for a new resurrection body. You don't know how much time you have? It doesn't matter. Because you are already a new creation. These are the words of Holy Scripture promising you a reality that you cannot see yet, but is more real than the reality that you can see. I pray that this Resurrection Sunday That the truths of this 1 Corinthians 15 will sink deeply down inside of you. That you will, if you are in Christ, you will have the confidence that you will be um, reminded, recharged, renewed. You'll know that you are a new creation in Christ. If you're hearing all of this and you're thinking, that sounds nice, but I don't think that's true of me. Let me encourage you. It can be true of you. You have heard the gospel message this morning. You have heard the offer of new life, of eternal life, of new creation, of resurrection, of peace with God, of forgiveness of sins. And the way that that comes to your life is by you turning, walking away from the life where you're in charge, where you're the ruler, where you're the Lord of your own life and you're the person that you think about most. You repent of that fundamental sinfulness, and you place all of your trust in Christ alone, in his death and his resurrection for your justification. And when you do that, you become a new creation. Please pray with me, and then we will spend some time remembering and communion. Father thank you for these words in 1 Corinthians. And Lord I I pray uh specifically for those in this room Lord who um they're feeling worn out, they're feeling discouraged, their their hope is reduced right now. Maybe they're they're facing um, medical problems. Uh they're having trouble recovering from illness or weakness. They've got family problems, families falling apart and things that were supposed to be good are now bad and and it's just hard to hope. Lord, would you minister to them? Would you help them to hope in the solid things of Christ? And even if those temporal, those fleshly things, if they don't get better, may they know the peace and the promise of real hope for eternity with you. Lord, for those who are trying to figure out this Jesus thing, trying to understand the gospel. Maybe they've even heard the gospel for the first time today, Lord. would Would you work in them? Would you help them to understand this great good news? Would you save them, Lord? Would you send your Spirit to awaken them, regenerate them, bring them into the family of God? Lord, for those of us who can't identify with the words that Paul said about how we would be most pitied if this is all the life we had. Because we're living our lives pretty great. Like we got everything we want. Everything's good. Lord, would you show us the the emptiness of a life that is full of pleasure and success here? But is not being used by you for your kingdom, Lord. Would you awaken in us the reality that we are citizens of a present yet still coming kingdom? That you are now our Lord and you are also our future Lord, and so everything we have, everything we are, belongs to you. Would you help us to live in such a way that if there is no resurrection, we have entirely wasted our lives here. Because we've spent them on you. In Jesus' name, amen.